And in a way, I feel like the UK is being more honest about this, or being intermittently more honest by saying, yeah, actually, we are going to prohibit some currently legal speech online. Like, we think that there are special harms done by distribution of speech on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube that, that don't happen when that same speech is stated in a, a bar or a park uh, or a church. And so we're going to regulate that. That's an honest approach. And I think what people are worried about with the DSA is that effectively that's going to happen. You know, effectively regulators will use their power to keep some of the so-called lawful but awful speech from being on platforms, but it won't be acknowledged and, you know, susceptible to court challenges and restrained by democratic processes and, and all these things that you would want in a major shift in speech policy. I'm Evelyn Dweck, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 5th, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. While US Congress has been doing hearing after hearing with tech executives that include a lot of yelling and not much progress, Europe has been quietly working away on some major tech regulations. Last month, it reached agreement on the content moderation piece of this package, the Digital Services Act. It's sweeping in scope and likely to have effects far beyond Europe. So I sat down with Daphne Keller, the director of the Program on Platform Regulation at Stanford's Cyber Policy Center, to get the rundown. What exactly is in the act? What does she like and what doesn't she? And how will the internet look different once it comes into force? It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 5th. Pay attention to Europe's Digital Services Act. So we are hoping to do a number of episodes on the European Digital Services Act, where some of them will be much more narrowly focused on specific provisions and and requirements. But given this is actually the first time that we have talked about the DSA, as it's colloquially known uh, on this podcast series, uh, we're going to zoom right out to start and take a bird's eye view. So let's just start right at the top, Daphne. What in a nutshell is the DSA? So the the DSA is an overhaul of the European Union's basic set of laws for intermediary liability, meaning what legal responsibility do platforms and internet access providers and caching providers and so forth have for content posted by their users and what content moderation responsibilities do they have. It's long and detailed. you You can think of it as part of a package with the Digital Markets Act, which is sort of the competition piece, and the GDPR from a few years back was the privacy piece, and this is the content regulation piece of what will be the governance model, you know, for the EU and platforms for a long, long time. Okay, great. So I don't want to lose any listeners straight away. And most of our audience is probably American and I'm sure many others don't live in Europe. And so I guess the question is, why should any of them care about a European regulation? Well, for one thing, platforms may well adapt to the European requirements and then just do the same things other places. Uh, I think they're likely to do that for some obligations in this law and not others. But that means that the experience of internet users around the world could be effectively shaped by the DSA. I think also a lot of other governments are looking to the EU to provide models. And so I think we will see 
other countries emulating parts or all of the DSA in their own domestic laws. Great. Yeah. So that's definitely the reason why uh, we asked you to come and talk to it is that while this is European, the the effects of it are certainly not likely to stay in Europe, particularly, I guess, because of the market power that Europe has that many other countries that might regulate platforms don't have. And so platforms, like you say, may apply these requirements globally for, for, for ease. So let's talk then about what those requirements are. You wrote a really helpful blog post uh, last week or the week before summarizing the DSA. Uh, And you said that the provisions fall into two general buckets. One is the prescriptive compliance obligation for most intermediaries, most platforms. And the second are major new regulatory mechanisms for very large online platforms or uh, do we have a consensus on how we're saying this yet? Is it VLOPs or VLOPs? I think Americans have been saying VLOPs and Europeans have been saying VLOPs in my experience. And, you know, they should win. Yeah. Okay. So let's call them (laughs) VLOPs for today then. Before we get to the VLOPs, uh, which is more fun to say, let's let's break it down and talk about the prescriptive compliance obligations for most intermediaries. And, you know, keeping in mind that no one has seen the final text yet, which maybe uh, we should come back to why that is. What are the major obligations that this set of regulations would impose? So there are some things like um, having a point of contact and a legal representative on the ground in Europe. And then there are a bunch of obligations that are about the operations of content moderation and of you know, removal of unlawful content. And those, they've got a lot of details. You know, if you are a platform trying to plan your DSA compliance, it's a little bit like what planning GDPR compliance was a few years ago. It's gonna take hiring, building new tools, building new user interfaces, and so forth. And the guts of it really are a lot of things that civil society all over the world has been asking for for a number of years, and now we're going to get it in spades. And I think actually it might be a little too much of a good thing. Platforms have to put out a clear public explanation of their speech rules and their terms of service. They have to publish a lot of uh, transparency reports or you know, have their various transparency mechanisms. They have to have ways for users to report prohibited content, and then they notify the person who is sort of the, the accused, and that person can appeal a takedown if they disagree with it. And ultimately, if people disagree with platforms, content moderation decisions, they can go to an alternative dispute resolution process that the platform pays for (laughs) Uh, or, you know, pays their side always and pays the the user's side if the user wins. Um, And then there's there's working with trusted flaggers in the EU, organizations that are um, experts and, you know, supposed to be particularly able to identify things like prohibited hate speech, some things uh, in interaction with law enforcement, including notifying them of suspicion of some serious crimes and honoring takedown orders from European authorities. Uh, And then some details, if you're a marketplace, if you are a porn provider or rather a porn platform, you have some, some other more detailed obligations. 
Great. So let's dig into some of those a little bit more. Let's start with the what most people might call due process provisions, which, as you mentioned, are very extensive. As you said, you know, they have to provide every user with notice uh, of a content moderation decision, not just when they take content down, but things like demotion or demonetization. And then there's an opportunity to appeal, which is open for at least six months after the original decision is made. And then that there has to be the opportunity to have a human in the loop. And uh, then, as you say, there needs to be this uh, opportunity to appeal to a third party out of court dispute settlement body. I think we've both written about how these kinds of procedural requirements, um, I think they're kind of ridiculous. Um, you just much more kindly called them maybe too much of a good thing. And and I'm curious for your reaction to that, why that is. Um, you know, what is it? I mean, most people would think of more process, more user rights as a, as a really good thing. Why do you think this is too much? Well, Part of, part of my concern is that these heavy process obligations are falling on smaller platforms. You know, things that might make sense to ask for from Facebook um, or YouTube, although you might say it doesn't even make sense for them. So that will be interesting to talk about in a minute. But things that might make sense for them don't make sense to impose on a company that has, you know, 200 employees or whatever. But a whole lot of these obligations do fall on on those smaller companies unless they're really, really small. And to my mind, that doesn't get you enough benefit for the cost that it is creating, not just the economic cost, obviously, on those individual small companies or, or entities, but the competitive consequences of them, you know, maybe not being able to bear up under these costs or not wanting to have to litigate when they inevitably fail in these processes and so forth, and just having even less of a chance against the incumbents than they have today. So most of my concern is about that competitive impact. But, you know, another way of saying that maybe is some of this process is a waste of time. (laughs) You know, the, the benefits for some minor dispute about an impulse post that somebody put up a few weeks ago of having multiple people do weeks of work going back and forth to resolve whether the removal was correct, those benefits might be slight compared to the costs. Yeah, I mean, those are basically my reasons as well. I think the anti-competitive effects or the potential for that is is a major one. You know, these are kinds of systems that Facebook and YouTube, for example, mostly already have. And then they have gone and written, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has written an op-ed in the Washington Post and Susan Wojcicki in the Wall Street Journal saying, yes, we agree that these obligations should be uh, imposed on platforms precisely because, as you're saying, then small <laughs> platforms will have to do what the big platforms are kind of already doing. But you're, you're right that I also think they might be not so effective or, or useful or certainly not worth the candle with the big platforms either in the absence of evidence that they really do increase accuracy. You know, you could just be appealing and still get erroneous decisions, uh, especially on the time frames that, you know, those appeals are supposed to be heard. There's sort of no evidence that users are more satisfied if they get to appeal. And I, I also have concerns that it's going to, like, protect some interests more than others. You know, it's going to protect people who have their posts taken down much more often because they're really invested in that decision rather than people who might think other people's content should be taken down because the end of the day, maybe you don't want to go all the way to an out-of-court dispute resolution body for someone else's post. But that's um, that's just my sort of, sort of feelings about that. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are a lot of limits to um, process as a corrective 
for mm-hmm. problems in content moderation. I mean, what one limit is if what we're concerned about is access to information, you know, things like the rest of the world getting to see footage of human rights abuses in Ethiopia, the person who uploaded video documenting a bad thing may not be in a position to engage in a big appeals process. Like the public interest lies with the people who want access to the information and an an appeals process doesn't fix that. There's also, there are studies suggesting that men are more likely to appeal takedowns. Uh, I would not be surprised. Yeah, shocker. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if that extends to the more privileged members of, you know, many societal groups. On the other hand, you know, one of the studies that I think was important to the European Commission in drafting this was some, something done by Martin Husevec and a co-author where it, just one of these sort of game theory studies where they set up, you know, student volunteers making some decisions and then disincentivized them from, you know, making the wrong decision or incentivized them to make the right decision through some kind of penalty that was supposed to replicate the effect of having outside reviewers under the alternative dispute resolution provisions. And, you know, I think not too surprising in this sort of laboratory setting, there was an improvement in the quality of the initial decision making when people knew that their work was going to get reviewed. So, you know, I don't think that part is wrong. It's just that if we rely on appeals as a corrective for everything that's wrong with content moderation, we're only going to fix a little bit of it. Okay, so to be fair, this isn't the only thing that the regulatory package relies on, and you just talked about the importance of trying to get more information. So let's talk a little bit about what the regulations would do in terms of transparency. There's a couple of different things, including the requirement for platforms to provide annual transparency reports, which again, by the way, the major look very much like the ones that the major platforms already provide. So we have that same sort of dynamic there. Um, Would you be able to sort of talk a little bit about what the transparency requirements would be and what you think of them? Even this part is going to take a long time to describe. So there's public transparency reporting of the kind um, that I think many of us are familiar with now, aggregate data about how much Uh, how many posts were taken down in particular policy categories and how many appeals there were and how many appeals succeeded. Things that have been civil society asks in things like the Santa Clara principles for for quite a while. So uh, platforms all up and down the size scale have to do some version of that. The larger platforms have to do a more extensive version of that. There's also this fascinating idea, or I guess it's it's not just an idea, it's a mandate kind of tucked into Article 15, which is every time the platforms notify a user that they have taken action against that user's content in some way, uh, which is going to happen constantly, you know, this flood of notices, they also have to send the same quite detailed notice to the European Commission, uh, where it's going to go into a database. And so you know, if the European Commission has tremendous engineering investment (laughs) to make this a functional database in a way that no one I'm aware of has ever done inside a platform or anywhere else, that would be a rather amazing and incredibly detailed resource. So that's a fun little bit. There's also their ad archives transparency obligations. There are obligations for transparency about how recommender systems or ranking systems work. 
And there is a provision for researcher access or regulator access to internally held data at the company, which I think is one of the most exciting pieces for a lot of researchers and and academics, because there's an idea that the regulator can approve certain researchers to get access to internally held data, presumably including personal information. And, And then they can kind of go to town looking at things that platforms might not want them to see. Right. And then we might finally be able to answer some questions about what on earth is going on uh, on these platforms, which so often are based on anecdata or, or speculation. So, Or a lot of people are going to get really frustrated. <laughs> I think there's going to be... <laughs> <laughs> Why not both? Um, yeah. Exactly. We realize that no one will ever be able to understand anything about what's going on, uh, which wouldn't be unuseful either. You mentioned the trusted flagger provisions. So uh, can you give us a bit more detail on what those are and you know how they would work, uh, You know what you think of those? Yeah, th- this builds on a model that's in the EU hate speech code of conduct, which is a nominally voluntary code negotiated by the commission and four big platforms several years ago. Uh, Microsoft, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter are the, the platforms that, that negotiated that. And so the, this old thing, the, the hate speech code of conduct, um, has an idea that if a trusted flagger has been sort of approved and designated as expert enough that they should be trusted more than other flaggers of illegal content, then platforms should create an expedited process for them to send in notices and the platforms should act more swiftly on those notices. The idea in the code of conduct is that they would act within 24 hours. So the DSA version of that is a little different. Um, The 24 hours piece is not mandatory, but recommended, according to what I've heard. This was a piece being negotiated until the last minute. And in individual countries, individual governments will approve trusted flaggers. And so, of course, you know, some people are worried about Hungary's trusted flaggers, and probably some people in Hungary are worried about Denmark's trusted flaggers or, you know, whatever, no no, no affront to Denmark or Hungary. And, you know, I think from a platform perspective, especially for the smaller platforms, again, just the idea of having the relationships with and the conversations with trusted flaggers in all these different countries might be a little daunting. And the history of trusted flaggers accurately identifying things is kind of a mystery. We don't have as much data as we would like. Uh, But in the early years of the hate speech code of conduct, the platforms were rejecting significant percentages, I want to say like on the 20 to 40% range of notices that came in from trusted flaggers. So the platforms at least thought that the trusted flaggers were making a bunch of mistakes. Yeah, right. Okay. So <laughs> that's uh, that's not encouraging. And I guess I'm curious what that, how that compares to untrusted flaggers, but I guess we don't, we don't necessarily know that yet. Let's talk about the VLOPs or VLOPs, uh, pick your poison, or the very large online platforms. So what kind of platforms will be classed as VLOPs and sort of how will they be treated differently? So you're a VLOP if you have more than 10% of Europeans using the platform. 
Uh, right now, that means having a monthly active user count of 45 million and up in Europe. And there was a lot of politicking around how you count those monthly active users. I believe the way it came out, it includes unregistered users, you know, people who just come to, to read but not to post, which, if that's the case, means you get a lot more of the, you know, the sort of Reddits of the world, for example, or the Quora's of the world, uh, potentially in scope. And if you are a VLOP, then in addition to the sort of prescriptive operational things we talked about before, the, the content moderation details, you also have this much more evolving, ongoing relationship with a regulator. And every year, you have to do a formal risk assessment, you know, what risks you see from your platform operations, and a formal risk mitigation plan, and be audited by an outside auditor, and then submit the results of all three of those things uh, to the regulator, which will be the, the European Commission in this case, and get feedback about whether you're doing enough. And there are a lot of uh, powers that sit with the commission to nudge platforms to mitigate risks in different ways than they're doing already. This was a source of great concern for civil society, just because it's such an open-ended power for something that may largely take place behind closed doors in, in discussions between platforms and regulators. And, you know, I think people would prefer for any major new obligations on platforms that might impact the fundamental rights of platform users to be negotiated out in the open with, with civil society input. That one is a big point of concern for a lot of people. In addition, the VLOPs have to appoint compliance officers and give them resources. They have to pay a fee annually to fund the operations of the regulator. Uh, they have these special researcher access requirements that I mentioned. They have to label deep fakes. And they also, and this was another like controversial one with civil society that changed at the last minute, they have special obligations to honor so-called crisis protocols. These are things like the protocol developed in, in the wake of, of the tragedy in, in Christchurch uh, that are mechanisms to in emergency situations, send out the word rapidly to platforms saying, hey, there's something bad, it's urgent, take it down. And people's concerns, I mean, you can probably guess <laughs> what civil, civil liberties advocates' concerns about this are, but it also has to do with this sort of open-ended power that sits with the commission, you know, that we hope will be used well, but as we all know, you know, even if you trust the people in charge of the commission now, regime change happens. So setting up this kind of, of power with the commission or all of their powers over the VLOPs uh, is a pretty big deal. Nah, emergency powers have never been uh, abused. <laughs> They're always, uh, always totally accountable um, and, and productive. I want to go back to the risk assessments just a little bit, because as you, you know, sort of you mentioned some nudges to sort of make VLOPs operate in, in certain ways. And I'm curious to get a little bit more detail on that. I think I'm generally in favor of risk assessments. They seem to me to be a good way to promote 
proactive thinking from platforms about the impact of their services and, you know, get some transparency about what they're doing and the systems that they have in place and, you know, maybe future sort of development of industry standards or or best practices as we get some more detail about systems that we basically don't know very much about at all. But you're right that these ones concern me a little bit because one of the things that they the platforms have to assess is the risk uh, that they pose to public health, which seems to me to be an interesting one. Like if we could assess the risk of content moderation to public health, everything about this would be so much easier. You would just not do the thing uh, that endangered public health. But I'm I'm curious to hear from you sort of what, what your concerns are or what civil society's concerns are with, with those uh, risk assessments. Yeah. So I also like systems-based approaches that I think many in in civil society do as well. There is particularly for the the biggest platforms, you know, they are shaping an ecosystem and the way to understand and regulate how they shape the, the online speech ecosystem is through regulating the systems that they use for for doing so and you know what their internal you know, machine learning models are for recognizing, say, content that endangers health and what happens, you know, what are the sensitivities of those models? And when they detect something that has a 80% probability of endangering health, what happens next? You know, questions like that. You know, you can think of it as analogous more to food safety or, you know, some other emissions regulation, some other just large scale operation being regulated not to ensure that each individual outcome is perfect, but to ensure that the system overall does the least harm possible or, or you know, hopefully has, has benefit. So I, I, I'm in favor of that broadly. I think the civil society concern isn't so much about the risk assessments as about the commission's authority to uh, work with platforms to figure out how to mitigate that risk. And this, this kind of gets into the same problem that the UK is struggling with, with their online safety bill, which is people are worried about harms perpetuated by speech on the internet, uh, including offline harms, like people getting terribly sick and dying, you know, really important harms. But the thing that they can do to address those harms is to stop online speech and information from flowing. And there are a whole bunch of human rights instruments and national constitutions that limit how you can do that. And and so the shift from saying we're talking about harm to saying, and the solution is a new set of rules about online speech it's a complicated one <laughs> and one where I think it, it's very easy to run afoul of instruments, including the European Convention on Human Rights or the, or the Charter for the European Union. Right. The same problem as always, that if you're a platform and you are going to be liable for not sufficiently addressing risk, you are incentivized to be risk averse, which, as you're saying, generally means that you will take down content because you don't you aren't necessarily invested as a platform in particular posts. Right. And, and you know, if the law prohibits X, maybe you'll prohibit, you know, X at a 10 percent margin around that or if you get notified about X, you'll just assume that whatever the content is described in the notice really does violate the law and not do the work to assess carefully 
whether it's you know over on on the legal side of the line. And in a way, I feel like the UK is being more honest about this or being intermittently more honest by saying, yeah, actually, we are going to prohibit some currently legal speech online. Like we think that there are special harms done by distribution of speech on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube that that don't happen when that same speech is stated in a, a bar or a park uh, or a church. And so we're going to regulate that. That's an honest approach. And I think what people are worried about with the DSA is that effectively that's going to happen. You know, effectively regulators will use their power to keep some of the so-called lawful but awful speech from being on platforms, but it won't be acknowledged and you know, susceptible to court challenges and restrained by democratic processes and, and all these things that you would want in a major shift in speech policy. So how exactly is the internet supposed to look different after this set of regulations? Like the, the overarching goal of this, apart from, you know, perhaps the, these extensive appeals mechanisms that, that are available, is the idea just that there will be more liability for failing to take down illegal content quickly enough? And so then there may be fines and, and more of that content will disappear. Is that is that the overarching goal? Is, is the dissatisfaction at the moment with too much illegal content online still? I think it's that and dissatisfaction with platforms exercising too much power over legal speech. So in in the US, we have this frustrating political divide where mostly Democrats are yelling at platforms and saying you should take down more content. And mostly Republicans are yelling at platforms and saying you're taking down too much content, stop censoring people. And, you know, I've always found that divide a little bit silly because I think most people worry about both of those things. You know, most people have some kinds of content that's legal, but they still want it taken down, whether it's hate speech in the U.S. or bullying or violence or pro-anorexia or pro-suicide content. There's all kinds of stuff that's legal here, but that many people's moral compass says that platforms should take down. Also, I think people across the political spectrum are worried about platforms' power over public discourse. It's not just conservatives who think that they might be on the receiving end of bias. You know, it's sometimes Muslim groups or Black Lives Matter affiliated groups or gay rights groups. And so what's what's kind of better in the European discussion is that a lot of the people involved in drafting the DSA were worried about both of those things. And so they did put in, in addition to all of these take down more type obligations, a bunch of protections that are intended to uh, keep more legal speech up or give more protections to users whose speech has been silenced. And, And so it's that second part that I think is new because Europe has always had a form of notice and takedown effectively for every kind of unlawful speech. That has been the case for decades. There's nothing new about that core approach. And the DSA mostly just puts a lot of additional process around that. But the the truly new part is the many, many provisions in here that are supposed to be on the pro-free expression side of the balance um, and, and that are intended to keep more content up. So that, that's one change. Another change, I think, will be the competitive consequences. I, you know, I think this will contribute to 
entrenching incumbents and making it less likely that somebody knocks them off their pedestals. And, you know, if you're cynical, maybe you would say, I'm, I'm going to name a cynic here. <laughs> if you're Cory Doctorow, who has written about this uh, quite beautifully in some op-eds, you might say that this is sacrificing diversity and competition and maybe chaos on the internet in exchange for making speech more regulable, you know, having larger platforms who can be told what to do. That, I think, is one of the elements of, of the future that the DSA brings us. But beyond that, I think if people are expecting clarity about what platforms should and should not take down or consensus about that, the DSA is not going to deliver that. You know, early in the DSA process, I did a Twitter survey because I love doing Twitter surveys, um, asking my many European followers what they thought would be the outcome of the, the Trump deplatforming dispute under the DSA. And by far the majority answer was like, eh, I don't know, but it'll be more legitimate. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So that's the DSA. It gives you a lot more legitimacy, but we, the outcomes remain rather indeterminate for a lot of the cases that people really care about. Right. You put five speech experts in a room and ask them a question and you'll get 25 different answers. Um, <laughs> but one of them will be legitimate, um, I suppose. One thing we haven't mentioned but is often so central to conversations about content moderation these days, you know, often talked about as the real problem beyond just takedowns or leave ups is the recommendation algorithms and the, the news feeds um, and the way that online platforms do or do not incentivize inflammatory and, and controversial content. Uh, so does the DSA have anything in particular to say about these algorithms? Yeah, it has a, a couple of things to say. You know, one is that platforms are supposed to disclose a lot more information about the parameters of the algorithms and how, how they're prioritized and so forth. And another is that if you're a VLOP, uh, you have to give users a little bit more of an opt-out from, from some aspects of, of ranking. Let me start with the transparency part. I don't know how useful this will be. You know, anybody who works seriously on algorithmic transparency runs into the problem very rapidly that like you can describe it in a way that's comprehensible to an ordinary reader, but then it has so little detail that it's not very useful to, to a computer scientist or even to a regulator, you know, or you could in principle release all your source code and then, you know, a computer scientist or maybe more like uh, a building full of them working for a year <laughs> might understand what the ranking algorithm is doing. But, the, you know, that's not useful to the user. And, and so it, I, I don't know. It remains to be seen if the, the transparency piece of this will make people meaning users meaningfully more informed or critics meaningfully more informed or regulators, you know, believe that they understand the, the algorithms better. But... For the VLOPs, they also have to, you know, have this researcher access and regulator access to undefined additional data or data that's defined by the purpose of the research, not that otherwise doesn't sort of have limits about what kind of information it might be in, in the DSA. Um, and, and so I imagine that a lot of the real questions about ranking and recommendation algorithms 
will channel through that through through researchers petitioning the commission to be you know vetted and approved to do this kind of work and then going in and and um, looking at the the guts of the, the inside of of the platforms going back to the options that the VLOPs have to provide as i recall anybody any platform that does have options for users to tinker with the ranking they have to you know disclose that to the users, which presumably you want to do if you have that option, I would think. Although now that I think about it, uh, maybe <laughs> Facebook and Twitter notoriously don't do a very good job of that. But the the VLOPs have to give users at least one option to turn off personalization to make it so that, you know, they're maybe they're still seeing ranking based on overall uh, popularity or recency or, you know, something but it's not based on any kind of profiling of them and, and their behavior and their data. Great. So are there any important provisions that I haven't asked you about or that you'd like to talk about more, whether because they're especially innovative and, and great or especially concerning at all? Two things that we haven't talked about so far, and, and it's really because I just don't work on them that much, so I, I haven't followed them in close detail. One is about ad targeting and the other is about so-called dark patterns. So the, there was an ad targeting provision that was negotiated until the last minute, kind of you know behind closed doors in a, in a way where we could have wished for more public transparency. And the outcome, as, as best as understood publicly, because of course we don't really have the final draft yet, uh, is that platforms can't target ads to users they know to be minors and they can't target anyone with ads based on sensitive personal information, so health information, for example. And I think if the user affirmatively provides that information, you know that, as I understand it, then the targeting can happen. But the, this is this is a major change and maybe an economically consequential change in the world of ad targeting. The dark patterns piece is an article that I I really didn't like the last time I looked at it. Uh, and I haven't looked at the current language, but it's part of this, you know, well-meaning push um, from a, a, a lot of people to get platforms to not nudge users into making particular choices, you know, to, to make their UI design such that users have more real autonomy and, you know, they're not pushed toward you know, the super size option or the sign me up in a way that's hard to cancel option or the yes, please take all my data option. And, you know, instead are, are presented with all options sort of weighted equally. And my, my concern with that, at least as it was drafted before, is just like, that sounds like a terrible user interface in a lot of easy to imagine situations. You know, maybe there are weird settings about font and background color or, you know, whatever that some people care about, but those people usually have to click through a couple of layers of menus to find them. But the majority of people don't care about, and in fact, the majority of people only care about a couple of things. I don't think the majority of people are served by having a UI that puts everything in front of them at once you know, without emphasizing the things that they're actually most likely to care about. Um, and I, I'm sure that wasn't the drafter's intention. And hopefully the language uh, of the revised version is less of a weird push in that direction than the language before. But I think drafting good language for the 
the quote unquote dark patterns problem is actually just really hard because there are so many situations where highlighting the likeliest preference or the things users care about most or you know whatever it is useful to the user and how do you differentiate that from the situations where a platform is highlighting what's not in the interest of the user so we mentioned a couple of times now that we haven't seen the final text, um, which seems like an important thing to note. So let's pause on that and, and talk a little bit about the process that's been involved. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you tweeted that the DSA had a fairly open democratic drafting process until the past few weeks, but what is happening now is shameful. Interest groups are getting ideas tacked on, things that will become binding law for a generation that never had any public airing, debate, or input at all. Um, so that's that's fairly um, you know bold language. Could you describe what the process has been. It's been going for a very long time and where we're up to now, why we haven't seen a final text and, and what you're talking about in that tweet. Um, what, what kinds of things have been changing in the last little bit? So the, the DSA went through a standard Brussels legislative process, which is the European Commission went through a long consultation process about what the new rules should be and then put together a draft. And this is something I really like about the European process is that the people who did this consultation and who wrote the draft have been thinking about this for years. They're extremely knowledgeable about these issues. They've heard from civil society and from platforms and from academics and from other people in government going back at least to 2011 about what works and doesn't about notice and takedown and how well automation works or, or fails to work in trying to catch prohibited speech, things like that. And so they, they asked smart questions in their consultation and they, they took the responses into account and they came up with a draft uh, that was a lot like how the DSA ultimately came out. Um, and then that draft went to the council and the parliament both of which came up with their own revisions and amendments to the commission draft. At that point, negotiators for all three of those bodies, commission, council, and parliament, go sequester themselves in a room for so-called trilogue negotiations. And the idea is they're supposed to be hammering out a compromise between the three positions. The thing that is problematic that can happen there and that did happen there to a certain extent is suddenly things get added that were never part of the public consultation process and that you know didn't get the civil society input or the, the expert input and, and so forth. And this is what happened with some of the pieces I mentioned civil society be, being concerned about the crisis protocols provision, the invoking the hate speech code of conduct 24-hour takedown requirement as a recommendation, apparently, is how it turned out. Those changes, to me, seem like in part a product of, of the war in, in Ukraine. Um, you know, I, I think it's a little bit like the USA Patriot Act rushing through with lawmakers being unusually willing to forfeit uh, civil liberties values in the name of security values in, in the U.S. after 9-11. And I don't feel like sitting where I am that I can judge you know, lawmakers sitting in Europe who felt like this is a time of crisis. 
we need a way for you know a strong executive to act quickly when when there's dangerous content you know promoting warfare and bloodshed on on the internet so that that's part of what happened in those last minute changes but then also you know what was reported and and prompted my intemperate tweet was that there was a lot of support for not only adding in search engines at the last minute, and search engines had not been in the commission draft or the parliament draft, uh, they had been in the council draft in a sort of small way, uh, but what this report said was that search engines were going to have take down, stay down obligations or filtering obligations, where if they're notified that content is illegal on one website, they need to make sure no other website ever appears in search results with that content, which thankfully did not wind up being the law in the DSA. I mean, that that would have been a pretty shocking development because a filtering mandate like that would be exactly what Europe had this major policy battle over just a couple of years ago in the copyright directive, and there was incredible opposition to having any kind of filtering mandate. Uh, it nonetheless passed, but that one was only for copyright. It, it didn't have an idea that platforms can build filters to detect often more nuanced things like hate speech or harassment. And it was only for certain hosting platforms. So it wasn't affecting what websites can be found in the amazing global index that, that is Google web search. Uh, so the, the speech consequences or the access to information consequences of things disappearing from web search inappropriately, I think can be much greater than the consequences of, of one hosting platform taking it down. As I said though, they, they thankfully <laughs> did not wind up having this take down, stay down provision. In, instead, I'm, I'm told by someone at the commission who would know, the structure for search engines is that they don't specify which of the safe harbor categories a search engine falls into. So they don't specify it if they might be treated as a caching provider, which some courts in Europe have done in the past, or as a hosting provider, as some courts in Europe have done in the past. And, and so it remains to be determined even what notice and takedown obligations they might have from one country to the next, de depending on, on how the court interprets that. Search engines are very large search engines, which I think might mean only Google, do have some additional obligations in that, more in the VLOP category, um, so that they have some, some systemic response duties, but not nearly as many as, as the large hosting sites will have. All right. So one thing that should be very clear from this conversation um, is that this is an extremely comprehensive regulatory program. There is a lot going on here. Uh, it's certainly a full employment program for lawyers and, and content moderators and apparently out-of-court dispute resolution professionals as well. There's many, many things that will need to be prepared and reformed. So when do all these people have to get ready by and what happens if they aren't? So like, what are the mm -hmm. penalties for non-compliance? Um, and do we actually expect to see really, really big fines? Because spoilers, there's some really big fines. Or, or how will this probably play out? So if you're a small platform, I wouldn't worry for a while. <laughs> you know, I would start gearing up, start your planning and your hiring, go ask your CEO for the budget you're going to need. But for them, the DSA won't come into effect until January 1st, uh, 2024. 
if you are one of the VLOPs, uh, the DSA is likely to come into effect sooner. So there's a, we are told, a provision for the commission to trigger application for the VLOPs on, I think it's four months notice, somewhere, somewhere between now and that January 2024 date. And I think that will be that will be a long, slow process in a way because they have to go through the process of even officially figuring out who counts as a VLOP and the commission has to do a bunch of hiring of its own and create a whole new regulatory system that didn't exist before. So there's a lot of ramp up on, on the regulator's side also. But once, once it does come into effect, those regulators have a lot of authority. You know, they, they have the formal authority to, you know, tell platforms to do things that we discussed before. But if they get unhappy enough, they technically are allowed to assess penalties as high as 6% of annual global turnover. That notably is 2% more than the GDPR enforcers get to assess. So the, the big club that the GDPR had, which people were already worried about, has been joined by a bigger club of these potential 6% fines uh, under, under the DSA. Realistically, that isn't going to happen absent some system, some situation of extreme intransigence. <laughs> you know, uh, European regulators typically pride themselves on how reasonable they are and I think are frustrated that uh, American lawyers often look at numbers like that and kind of freak out. Um, you know, if, if you live in a country with more sort of trusted and moderate regulators, you know, I think there's just a lot more inclination to also trust that they won't abuse the, the power inherent in, in being able to assess fines like that. The other thing to think about here is, is jurisdiction. Um, so the jurisdictional sweep, the like assertion that the DSA covers companies outside of Europe is a lot like the jurisdictional sweep of the GDPR. Uh, so it reaches platforms that are directing their services to Europe, which you know might mean offering goods in a local currency. That seems like a strong version of directed could look at things like the user interface, could look at things like how many Europeans are actually using the service. It's, you know, so it, it, it does nominally apply to a lot of platforms that have no presence in Europe and it nominally exposes them to these incredible fines. But I think it would be a very slow process to get to the point of platforms that, that really basically don't have any contacts with Europe having to worry about about actions by the regulators. The regulators have a lot of other priorities. Okay, so talking about those regulators, I, I sadly don't think I can resist asking you about the man of the hour, Mr. Musk. Since Elon Musk made his deal to buy Twitter um, and, you know, seems to have this intention to make it a much more freewheeling, uh, censorship-free, quote-unquote, as, as he sort of seems to be branding it, platform, there's been a bit of commentary about how these EU regulations may or may not get in the way of that. And Thierry Breton, the European Commissioner for the Internal Market, uh, for example, tweeted, be it cars 
on social media, any company operating in Europe needs to comply with our rules, regardless of their shareholding. Mr. Musk knows this well. He is familiar with European rules on automotive and will quickly adapt to the Digital Services Act. So how disappointed is Mr. Musk likely to be that he's made this uh, huge investment and along comes this regulation that uh, ties his hands and he can no longer see his vision play out? Is that likely to be the outcome here? I think it will be frustrating to him, uh, for sure. So, I mean, for starters, I don't believe the future of Twitter under Elon Musk is a completely unregulated free-for-all because you're an unmoderated free-for-all because an unmoderated free-for-all version of Twitter would very rapidly lose its commercial value. You know, advertisers wouldn't want to be there. Users wouldn't want to be there. People who successfully use Twitter as a megaphone, like Mr. Musk, uh, would find that it's not a very useful megaphone <laughs> if they are, you know, lost amidst the the Nazis and the bullying and the spam and the Viagra ads and, you know, wh- whatever else. And so I, I think there will be some form of content moderation, albeit under different rules. But I think that from what we know of Mr. Musk's fondness for impulsive action and, you know, strong, swift statements at least, that's going to be a little harder under the DSA, you know, because so much of the DSA is about disclosing what the rules are and then enforcing them through careful processes. And so if, you know, if, if the head of Twitter is suddenly changing policies on a whim or decides that he really hates a particular counter, particular post and wants them to come down or loves them and wants them to stay up. But that's not what it says already in the published terms and conditions for the platform. That's going to be a problem. You know, this is something that makes processes for big platforms cumbersome in the name of being more fair. And that seems like the opposite uh, of what Elon Musk likes. So last question then is about how this might be viewed elsewhere. As you said, other regulators might uh, sort of be looking at this and seeing how it works in practice. And there's been some commentary uh, as this deal was finalized in the last few weeks um, that the US should follow suit and not you know, fall behind the EU in terms of reining in the tech platforms and seed the ground. Uh, And many people respond to that saying, oh, but pesky First Amendment, uh, they can't do the same kinds of things. And I'm not so sure myself that the First Amendment is an all-purpose deregulatory device. Um, And there there might be some things that are possible to do under the DSA, although there are others, I think, that, that would be unconstitutional. There is a bill on the Hill called the Digital Services Oversight and Safety Act that resembles the DSA in many, many ways. So I'm curious for your thoughts on this. How possible would it be to pass something like this in in the US or is the First Amendment such that this is just, it's a completely different regulatory regime over there and it's going to be Europe that is doing this kind of substantial regulation for the foreseeable future? I, I think one of the biggest differences is that American legal culture is just not very friendly to big, powerful regulators in the same way. And Congress, I can't imagine Congress creating and empowering a big, you know, muscular new regulator of the sort that is central to to the DSA. So that piece of it, I think, is not very plausible here. That piece of it is also where a lot of the potential First Amendment problems sit. 
because if that regulator is effectively nudging and shaping platform speech policy, that could make it subject, like quite easily subject to First Amendment claims both by platforms whose you know, rights to set editorial policies and enforce the content moderation rules that they want are being burdened. And, and by users who wanted to post something and then it disappeared or got demoted or, you know, they otherwise lost their megaphone for legal speech because of something that the regulator influenced the platform into doing. And so I, I think there is a, a significant First Amendment problem there, but it's a problem with a thing we're never going to do as a political matter anyway. So I don't worry about it too much. I think there are a lot of other individual pieces of the DSA that could work here. You know, the DSA builds on the e-commerce directive, this, you know, previous EU law, and the e-commerce directive built in part on the US DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is a notice and takedown system for online copyright infringement. So we actually can do <laughs> procedurally detailed notice and takedown systems. The one in the DMCA has a bunch of known flaws. There are ways to improve it. But, you know, we could, we have done and we could do again something kind of like a lot of the operational pieces of the DSA. We might have to do it more with carrots and less with sticks, you know, more by, you know, conditioning immunities on doing things and, and less, less through, through mandates. But, but I don't think a lot of that is impossible. The piece I worry about the most well, not the most. The piece I happen to be testifying to Congress about tomorrow, and so it's top of mind right now, is, is the transparency reporting. I, I think in Europe, there's very little question that, that regulators can compel platforms to do all of these transparency disclosures. And in the US, it's actually a really big question. Uh, there was a Fourth Circuit case just a couple of years ago striking down Maryland's ad to online political ad targeting disclosures law. This was a law passed at, in the wake of the 2016 election that was supposed to provide more transparency about who was targeting whom with political ads leading up to elections, you know, the kind of thing that civil society routinely asks for. And it got struck down as a First Amendment violation for a, a whole list of reasons, you know, including that it was compelled speech for the platform and that it would have a chilling effect on the, the advertiser speech affected and that it, you know, the means and ends were not uh, tightly enough tailored together. And so I think for the disclosure obligation pieces of the DSA, there is this big constitutional question hanging over them in, in a U.S. version. Well, Daphne, that was an exceptionally clear guide through a labyrinthine piece of legislation. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to do that. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and in our new separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed. And we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. Remember to subscribe to the separate feed so you can find the new episodes when they come out and please rate and review us. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Bookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com forward slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by the amazing Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Isabel Kirby McGowan of Goat Rodeo. 
Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.